Welcome to the latest edition of the Mind Gut Conversation podcast, a place to learn about breakthroughs in the science and practice of health, mind-body interactions, the microbiome, food, and the environment. Today, I have the great pleasure to talk to Dr. Tracy Bale, who is the Anschutz Foundation Endowed Chair in Women's Integrated Mental and Physical Health Research in the School of Medicine at the University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus. Dr. Bale is also a professor and director for intergenerational stress in health and the director for sex differences research in the Department of Psychiatry. Dr. Bale's research focuses on understanding the role of stress dysregulation in neurodevelopmental and neuropsychiatric diseases and the sex differences that underlie disease vulnerability in humans. She's interested in stress and adversity across the lifespan, including examining defects at the germ cell level and the mechanisms involved in altering brain development. Dr. Bale's lab examines these mechanisms in preclinical models, attempting to translate research findings to humans to identify those processes and biomarkers important for promoting disease risk and resilience, especially in vulnerable populations. Dr. Bale serves on many international and internal and external advisory committees, panels, boards, including the NIMH Board of Scientific Counselors, and has been the recipient of numerous awards for research, including the Richard Weitzman Memorial Award from the Endocrine Society, the Medtronic Award from the Society for Women's Health Research, and the Daniel Efron Award from the American College of Neuropsychopharmacology. She is the president of the International Brain Research Organization, EBRO, and was awarded Top 100 Women in Maryland 2020. Welcome to the show, Tracy. I'm really looking forward to this conversation, talking to you about your work and, and, and your interests. So let's start with a, with a general question about the multiple ways by which stressful environments um, that a person experiences either preconception, during pregnancy, during early development, influences the phenotype of the offspring. And so phenotype meaning behavior or uh, health or, 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 or disease. Could you discuss some of these, the most important aspects of this intergenerational programming and um, some of these examples, main examples, programming of the HBA axis, the vaginal microbiome, maternal gut microbial metabolites, and inflammatory signals affecting the brain development of the fetus, um, and extracellular vesicles, something that, that you have in your research focused on. Um, and, you know, what, whatever you want to emphasize of those mechanisms, uh, we can focus on those. Sure. Thank you, Simran. Uh, I'm going to start from the, the first thing you mentioned, which is uh, programming of the HPA axis, which is the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal stress axis. Uh, one of the reasons that we've spent the all of my career basically focused on, on how your stress response matures, develops, and is programmed by your experience is because it is the most translational part of the, the physiological response that we all have in terms of how the hormones that are produced, the system in which it feeds back and shuts back down for anything from an acute stress experience 
Again, if you're driving on the freeway in LA full of traffic and out of nowhere, you're daydreaming, someone pulls in front of you and you have to slam on the brakes to avoid an accident or you get into an accident even worse. That's what we think of that as an acute response and you will have a hypothalamic activation producing hormones from your pituitary that will activate your adrenal gland, making those stress hormones we know as glucocorticoids. One of the reasons that uh, my whole career is spent using that as a readout is because it's the same in all mammalian species. And so unlike things like trying to understand mood uh, in a human being and trying to model that in a mouse, which is very difficult, how do you know what the mood of a mouse is, uh, or many of the behavioral tests that we often use in neuroscience. These are very complicated to sort through and without being able to have a conversation with the species, you can talk with a human being, how have you been feeling? Can you get out of bed? How has your sleep been, et cetera? Many of these things are very difficult to assess in an rodent. So the stress axis is very easy because you can take a, a very small blood sample and have a pretty good idea of the state of that animal. So that's an acute response. We can also learn a lot about chronic experience. So just like in humans where you can experience chronic stress, maybe your job is very stressful, maybe your home life is very stressful, um, you can also experience kinds of trauma. Those could be sexual trauma, kinds of interpersonal violence. You can experience, for instance, in this country, if you were, if you belong to a lot of uh, minority populations and communities, you may experience different kinds of trauma, discrimination, microaggressions, bias, et cetera, lack of equity, lack of resource uh, assessment. And those kinds of, of, of traumas can be very impactful in current generations and in, in uh, future generations as well. And I, I think that understanding chronicity in our animal models, and even in the level of cell culture, allows us to assess a lot of mechanisms that can then be translated into therapeutic interventions. And so that's the HPA axis. And we know that those glucocorticoids, the stress hormones produced in all mammalian species, they not only serve to tell the brain, but also the body that this is stress. And I think one of the really important things in this field that we think about is that all mammals have a circadian rhythm. And it, you know, while some species are nocturnal and some of them are diurnal, that those, those glucocorticoids are actually part of that circadian rhythm. And so every cell in your body sees stress levels of glucocorticoids every day in a 24 hour cycle, which is super interesting. So how does a cell know that you've experienced stress? The example I gave you almost getting into a car crash on the freeway versus the rise and fall every day of rhythm. And that's one of the molecular or the, or the mechanisms within individual cells. You can look inside a neuron. You can look inside cells that line the reproductive tract. And those are the cells that we're also interested in my lab, because if you change the programming of a cell along the reproductive tract of mom or dad, now you have the possibility of affecting which signals go into the germ cells that become the next generation. And so while germ cells are constantly turning over, especially in men, right, you're making new sperm every day, that in fact, the glucocorticoids, those stress hormones under trauma or chronicity of stress 
can actually change those cells along the reproductive tract, changing signals that tell the germ cells, this has been a stressful environment. We need to either kick up the rate of, of uh, fertility or decrease the rate of fertility. And you can imagine, Emran, that during particularly traumatic events, such as a famine, right? Evolutionarily, what's the greatest disadvantage for propagation of a species, survival of a species? Famine. So during that, you may not want to reproduce. But when there is a signal that that traumatic event or stress is over, now you may want to quickly propagate a species. And so we can say that. We can see that in a cell culture system. We can see that in the mice that we use. And we also have human studies that we follow along in many different uh, traumatic or adverse events. So this happens on a this this happens on a biological level, not necessarily yeah. a cognitive exactly. or exactly at a biological level, very much so. I mean, of course, in humans and in animals, there's you need to have the perception of stress itself. So for mice, that can be something that we expose them to every day for weeks on end that makes them very stressed. They don't like change, they don't like novelty, and that tends to produce lots of stress hormone for them. For humans, we study cohorts at which Different communities have been exposed to, again, discrimination or bias or uh, interpersonal violence, such as sexual trauma, or maybe things such as uh, different periods across the lifespan and really matter for when trauma happens. So again, you're surrounded by a community of a lot of gun violence. Um, that might be something that as a child becomes part of how different uh, physiological systems can mature and can ultimately change how you might produce offspring in the next generation. Yeah, this is really fascinating. Um, as, a, as a side question, I mean, there's this phenomenon of decreasing fertility in, a, in, in quite a few Western countries, extreme in some countries. Do you think this is in any way related to this? Um, That's a great question. I've actually been on several different panels recently around the world talking about some of the effects of, of the current um, escalation in stress around the world that we're all experiencing. Uh, climate change has become incredibly stressful depending on where you live. As, as Emeryn, as you and I were just discussing, the floods, fires, landslides, all of those things that are happening in California are all a big part of uh, climate change and they're not going away. And if you have a house, depending on where you live or the traffic you have to deal with, et cetera, it's a continuous stressor that you endure. In other parts of the world, flooding, if you live on an island, et cetera, uh, crop production, food availability, all of those things. So that's just climate change. Now, if you add on top of that, the um, political dysfunction that's happening in many countries, including our own, you don't have to even pay attention much to the news. All you have to be on social media just to see the divisiveness. And then you have the pandemic, Mm -hmm. especially for our young people, we're seeing a huge escalation, 30, 40% increase in mental health um, disorders. And so all of these things together, yes, they're producing an incredibly stressful environment, much of which is out of our control. And we know that that's the worst kind of stress that which we have no control over. And so is that contributing to the reductions in fertility rates? Possibly. Could it also be a lot of environmental toxicant factors that they think might be playing a role as well? And there may be some feedback evolutionarily about populations 
you know, control within populations in cities, et cetera, that is, is, is evolutionarily trying to control itself through fertility. So, so that's, that's the HBA kind of, I think of that as the, the higher order aspect of the, the studies that we do. And of course, everything mechanistically trickles down from there, whether it's, you know, Emeryn, you mentioned the, the maternal microbiome, whether it's maternal vaginal microbiomes, and yes, your, your vagina has a, a microbiome, which is unique to each individual woman. Uh, and your gut, of course, you know a lot about uh, out there and, and thinking about the gut microbiome. So all of those play roles in the diet that mom has access to. Again, you can think about our vulnerable communities who don't necessarily have access due to food deserts and a lack of, of stability and resource access, communities where they um, may or may not have resources available for, for producing or consuming uh, nutritious food, and therefore the gut microbiome, in a way, is 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 very affected by that. And the metabolites and nutrients produced and processed by the microbiome differ, and that can affect mom's health, which affects baby's health, or even more directly have a, an impact on on fetal development. When you're born and you're a natural vaginal delivery mom's vaginal microbiota environment can be very impactful for everything from the baby's skin microbiome to that bit of inoculant that babies get because going through the birth canal is a little bit like passing through a very tight vacuum. And so there is ingestion of some of that vaginal microbiome. Uh, our group and others have, have identified the fact that that initial inoculant, we like to call it, that initial seeding of the baby's Otherwise, empty gut microbiome can be really important for programming initially the immune system. And now we set off all kinds of possibilities for how, uh, from your work um, and, and books that I'm looking on the back of your shelf there, Emeryn, the importance of the gut immune connection starts you know, from the point of birth. And so those are important mechanisms. And all of that, of course, feeds into how the brain develops, because as a neuroscientist, I care a lot about the brain. And then the last one, the extracellular vesicles, is a much newer mechanistic biomarker and signal that, that we've been studying in the lab for probably about a decade now. Uh, it really, a lot of these studies came out of the cancer biology world. Cancer biologists have been studying vesicles. These things are these nanoparticles that are secreted. Again, I love the translational piece of this because all mammals produce them. All tissues in your body produce them, and they travel in circulation at very high concentration, but they have an incredible specificity, despite the fact that they're so dynamic. They have very specific proteins and very specific types of these vesicles, these nanoparticles that have a mission. They're out to do something. They're a signal for, for how, for instance, in pregnancy, how the placenta, which produces a ton of these vesicles, so in the stage of pregnancy, there is a more than fourfold increase in concentration of circulating vesicles. And why? Because they're doing all kinds of crazy important things. They're, the placenta secretes them to coordinate and strategize the cells across the placenta based on maternal health and programming of fetal health. And so they're really important communicators they also coordinate for mom. They travel in mom circulation. 
They do everything from coordination of the circadian rhythm and coordination of glucose uptake. So if you're pre-diabetic, you might be producing more of these vesicles as the body tries to compensate for getting glucose taken up faster. So they're super fascinating, Emren. Um, we've been able to do studies in, in human cohort populations for different communities exposed to different types of trauma at different time points in the lifespan. So taking, for instance, 30 and 40-year-old women in the city of Atlanta that are working through the, the Grady Trauma Hospital and actually looking at uh, a traumatic experience that they had decades earlier and being able to isolate from blood samples specific proteins that have led to a whole new field of study about how integration of the autonomic nervous system that innervates the skin, which is something we had never thought that we'd be studying. So they seem to be stress signals. They seem to be stress responsive, and they may serve as really important biomarkers that could tell us for instance, a pregnant woman who might be at risk of any number of, of insults in pregnancy, that she could be better watched and intervention to prevent morbidity and mortality for both mom and baby. So are these vesicles, um, I mean, it's obviously a way that the, the body and cells and organs in the body interact, communicate with each other. But is 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 there evidence that they actually play a role in disease, like alterations? Like you said, this is this massive increase in yeah physical, yeah there um, there is some evidence out there that you see changes or composition there's changes in size there's all different things you can look at for these extracellular vesicles in cancer for sure they've done a ton of work there's startup companies and patents everywhere around uh, using these as both biomarkers of disease state but also in in producing synthetic nanoparticles that either could have a direct targeting where you could utilize them to deliver drug targets. People are now looking at them because they come in and out of the brain as well. Is this a way to get beyond the blood-brain barrier? Could you deliver drug, so drug delivery to really specific targets to avoid side effects, for instance? Um, it's becoming more and more, I presented on this about a decade ago um, at the uh, a big neuropsychiatric conference, ACMP, and it was the only the first mention of these things at the meeting. And people are like, what is this? This looks like magic. Um, and 10 years later now, it is actually something that a lot of uh, research in psychiatry is looking at is, is this a way that we can say what treatment might work better for somebody in psychiatry, uh, as well as a biomarker, meaning of state of an individual, right? We don't have any biology. If you're depressed or anxious or schizophrenic or PTSD or whatever you're trying to have treated, there's no way other than your feedback of how I feel mm -hmm. to say biologically the drug is, is, or is not working. Mm -hmm. And so this might be one of those ways to say, hey, we're seeing a reduction in a particular biology of these markers. I mean, I can't help uh, asking the question, um, you know, a, a, a microbiome related question. Is there any communication between these? Oh, these good question, Amarin. There the actually is. So bacteria produce their own nanoparticles. So they, the name has changed over the years as people have become to study them, begun studying them more and more. So extracellular vesicle or exosome is something that mammalian cells produce. Bacteria, different bacteria, depending on the cell wall composition of the bacteria, make their own type of these same nanoparticles 
that we know communicate across the gut and the, well, this is where they've been studied the most, across the microbiota, but also now seem to be maybe detectable in circulation. So could they be signaling to other organs or cell systems within, within the body as well? It's a brand new area. Not a lot is known, but yes, you definitely see these same particles produced by bacteria. It's fascinating because, uh, as you know, there's also now this interest, um, intense interest in the role of the, 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 the gut microbiome in, in cancer treatments and in, in, in melanoma, seemingly predicting the outcomes, uh, you know, depending on what kind of composition yeah. of microbes you have. You have either a positive or negative outcome from, from the conventional therapy. I just wonder, just listening to this conversation, if these exosomes are not involved in that in that phenomenon, because we you know, the, the longer I've been studying them, Emeron, I would say it seems like they're involved in just about everything. There's now evidence within the brain that these things serve as local communicators across synapses and participate in how glia may communicate more specifically with neurons. So I think this is going to be, you know, a coming decade of really trying to understand, you know, 20 years ago, people thought these were garbage. They thought that they were, the cells were dispensing of all the cellular garbage and that's what they were traveling in circulation. It's really only been the last decade or so, again, a lot done by cancer biologists to, to figure out that there's such cell communicators. Yeah. So really fascinating to listen to you, I have to say, you know, um, so let me ask you this 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 question. So, from the microbiome world, you know, right, most familiar with, um, we're already dealing with hundreds of thousands of metabolites that are being generated, and that can uh, many of which are getting to the systemic circulation. And uh, so now you have all these other signaling molecules, including these exosomes. How how does the organism deal with that massive amount of information that's receiving? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, Emma. That's a great question. I mean, when I first started working in um, extracellular vesicles, which came through uh, one of our uh, findings related to doing uh, omics, transcriptomics, looking at broadly across changes in the placenta in mouse and human and sex differences and stress and what was happening, the 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 regulatory mechanisms that we were we kept coming back and, and back to again and again, seem to regulate these proteins. And the more we looked into what these proteins were and how they were being regulated, it was, it was part of this mechanism of secreting vesicles. And that's how we got started in this area. And, and then learning more about what they do and how do they, how do they, you know, signaling locally seems obvious, you know, so, so uh, intergenerational studies that, that we do from in males have a lot to do with how sperm matures. Um, and when you go through spermatogenesis in the testes, when sperm are, are at the at the end of that spermatogenic cycle, they, they're not mature, they can't swim, they can't fertilize. And so they're, it's kind of a fluid momentum that pushes them into the epididymis, which sits on top of the testes. And there's actually a, a, a host of activity that has to happen in that epididymis, and it's called a caput, which is this very specific part of the epididymis. And so it's not just storage, there's actually active maturing of the germ cell that happens there. And because now it's outside of the protected blood, uh, I wanna say blood brain, but blood testis barrier, and there's all kind of jokes that we'll leave out of, of that 
that, that aspect of the similarities between the blood testis and the blood brain. Um, but in the, in the epididymis, it's now that dad's DNA is protected, right? Because remember, it's all during the process of spermatogenesis. The, the, the point of doing that is that in addition to replication, the DNA is all wound up very tightly and protected in these protamine structures. And so now that you've safeguarded the DNA from the environment, now, if there was anything evolutionarily that made sense that could be beneficial to your offspring, do you want them to metabolize energy better? Do you want them to conserve energy? Do you want them to be born faster or whatever? That's where you'd want that environmental signal to happen. So we spend a lot of time in those cells that surround that function. And so one of the things that's critical for that maturation point are extracellular vesicles. So, so that makes sense. Like, you know, when you're talking about like, how does the system regulate all of these signals in the, in this, in the systemic uh, milieu like, well, okay, well, locally in the caput of the epididymis and these tubules there, you can make, that can make sense, right? The EVs that are circulating there are talking to the sperm and there's, it's local. So to me, like, okay, that makes sense. You can change yeah, yeah, yeah. what the cells are putting into those vesicles, evolutionarily conserve that. And that could change as the sperm deliver those signals to the egg you could change something dramatically about the offspring, but you're right. When you start thinking about, okay, now things that are secreted into circulation coming from the placenta in pregnancy or whatever, right? Four times the concentration. Yeah. yeah. How does a system deal with all of that communication? Well, I will tell you, I think it's similar for a lot of uh, microbiome metabolites as it is for EVs. They're really dynamic. They're turning over very quickly. And so I think not every signal is going to make it where it needs to go before it's it's washed out of of the organism mm -hmm. and maybe that's the limiting factor and that's why in pregnancy where it's so important you increase the concentration because now just by the law of averages you're more likely to get something where it needs to go interesting yeah, yeah you know so maybe it's just the fact of everything's going through some things are going to be taken up some things are going to wash out and if it's really important that concentration is just going to be higher. Yeah. So let me let me come back. So in you know, with, with the first question, we talked about these these multiple ways by which um, a stressful environment is transduced, uh, either for people that live in that environment or for the offspring intergenerationally. Um, but not not everybody gets gets sick, or not not everybody develops a psychiatric disease. So there must be some very powerful counter-regulatory resilience mechanisms. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do, uh, do we know anything about those? Yeah, so I, I think about this question a lot. You know, the kind of the old terms we used to use are risk and resilience. We try to stay away from resilience a little bit only because if you're out in the community and you're framing it as risk and resilience, saying the term resilience places the onus on the individual is that, well, you must not be tough enough because you can't overcome this trauma. But in science, we think of it as, as, as risk and resilience. And I think what you're getting at, Emmer, is why even within a given household experiencing, for instance, the same trauma, dad is abusive or mom is neglectful or what have you, how is it that different individuals rise out of that 
or even actually there's terms in psychiatry where they utilize that as a launching point where some individuals take adversity and use it as a way to make themselves stronger. And some individuals can't. And I, I think, I think of this as what I term as the G by E by D, which is your genetic background that you inherit and you can do nothing about. And even within the same family, you may get different risk and resilient uh, uh, S uh, SNPs. So small nucleotide polymorphisms that you may have the combination because of, and, and I will say that sex and gender play a role here, very much so. And so you may have a composite of DNA that just puts you at risk. And no matter how much you would like to overcome your adversity, you don't have the tools or, or you're necessarily the DNA to do that. It, so that's the, the G is the genetics, the E is the environment that you're talking about. And so it also may be part of that, right? So maybe the household is full of adversity, but one of the children happens to have a, a friend's a friend whose household where the parents are actually nurturing and they spend a lot of time over there, or there's somebody at school that mm. takes them under their wing, you know, whatever. So that's the E. And then the D is the developmental windows, because it does matter when adversity happens. You know, did that adversity happen preconception, during pregnancy, early in childhood? We have some of these biomarkers, these EVs have shown us in humans that with particular types of traumatic events. We looked at sexual trauma because you can really identify the timing of when it happened. And it produces such remarkable differences in health risk. So if that adversity happened in childhood, way prior to puberty, those women were really at risk as a group, clearly for obesity, diabetes, and hypertension, which is probably a composite of programming that happened probably involves something about the immune system, may involve the microbiome got set up, right? How you process energy. If you experience that adversity during that adolescent window, prior to adulthood, but during that window, you didn't show any of those effects related to obesity and diabetes, but man, you had a cascade of risk factors for PTSD and, and holding on to the trauma, even though for both groups, it was decades later. And then again, we saw these differences with the biomarkers. So I think it's the complexity of who we are as human beings with the DNA, we inherit the environment we experience. And when both adversity and enrichment, right? The other side of that coin, when it happens, if you experienced a traumatic event, but you had a really nurturing environment at the mm -hmm. right time, it may wash out those effects. And, and sex, as a biological variable, man, it is so important. Boys seem to be much more at that risk point uh, prenatally, all kinds of adversity that happens. And we've done these studies in mice and we've studied them in humans. And you know, if you, if you ask a NICU nurse or an obstetrician, they will always tell you there's more boys than girls in the NICU that that if there are girls in the NICU, they go home earlier than boys. There's just something protective. We think it has a lot to do with the programming of the placenta that seems to protect girls in utero. But once you're born, that flips around. And now a lot about the sex differences in DNA puts girls at greater risk. So I think it's a really 
important but very complicated question that involves a lot of those factors that we're working on studying. But I think we can't really dismiss the idea that boys and girls are, again, different windows of vulnerability. It's really fascinating because, as, as you know, like uh, one uh, neurodevelopmental disorder, um, autism spectrum disorders, is much more common in, 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 in boys. And, and actually, Emmerin, all neurodevelopmental disorders are more common in boys than girls, which points to that in utero. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. No, it's, and, it's, and, and it's interesting, you know, as you know, like with the microbiome science, this has been very, uh, a lot of people have jumped on this in terms of autism spectrum because the, the, the patients with that diagnosis have an altered gut microbiome. Um, but but they also have an altered diet, which probably contributes to their altered microbiome. Yeah, yeah. But what I always thought is it's much more interesting and important given this developmental trajectory yeah. What happened to the pregnant mother, you know, because obviously this autistic brain did not develop after delivery. Nope. It, it developed in, in, in utero. And exactly right. Yep. From, yeah. Yeah. And so the question, the, the big question then is, you know, you will get some people who argue for, for autism diagnosis that girls hide it better than boys. And so they're diagnosed less. But I think if you look at the data just overall, even in populations where, you know, is it is it also access to diagnosis? Who's likely to go in? Whose teachers are likely to report disruptions? Those kinds of things. That it really still holds up, right? That that there's more boys than girls. And so then, if it happens developmentally, do our sex chromosomes mm -hmm. contribute to the risk and resilience? We think so. There's some really protective mechanisms that escape X inactivation. So there's more of them in the cells of a girl's placenta than a, than a boy's. Mm -hmm. And how, yeah, how do those factors factor in for all of the things happening in pregnancy? It's a huge insult to mom, right? Physiologically, it's a big demand she's carrying. So how, how does that whole system regulate? Like you said, mom's gut microbiome, mom's vaginal microbiome, all of those things factor in. And that's only recently that people have focused their 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 attention on it. Certainly, in autism, and I think the same thing will probably hold true for um, for schizophrenia and absolutely potentially absolutely. also in the long term. You know, for um, for these neurodegenerative disorders, that they may have early right. There's new thinking that neurodegenerative disorders are actually neurodevelopmental in origin, which makes makes the the year span in humans very difficult to figure out the linkage right of what you were exposed yeah, yeah, to yeah. but but probably very important just mention something in your um in your cv so in in your in your current position you also um do a lot of activities with community outreach and education and um um maybe you want to explain some of this i, I found that fascinating of all the people that i've uh talked to on the podcast so far i've not seen that in their in their cvs so could yeah i i i think it's incredibly important uh you know the thing that we started off this conversation with emran about the divisiveness in this country right now just as as americans i'm also president of the international brain research organization which has somewhere close to 80,000 members around the world we have five regions that literally in neuroscience encompass the entire world of neuroscience and so you see where, where equity is lacking and where diversity is not valued and bias exists. 
And I, I think even within the United States of America, because of the incredible device, divisiveness that is not going away anytime soon, that uh, if we as scientists don't engage in our communities, and I am not talking about outreach, and I'm using air quotes here because I really don't like that term, outreach suggests that we are somehow privileged out doing things for mm -hmm. uh, individuals in the community, but rather engagement, which says, we're going to learn from you and you're going to learn from us and we're going to have a conversation to benefit each other. Um, if we don't do that, then we we miss the opportunity to step out of our ivory towers as we're perceived here and, and recognize that the things that we write in our grants and the things that we study are actually currently existing and happening in the community. And I study stress and trauma, and there's a lot of that out there right now. And understanding what a community perceives as their concerns, what a community perceives as its needs, what a community decides that they need help with is something that we can't determine for them, A. And B, when we talk to our communities and engage with them, they learn about the science that we're doing. And nothing could be more important right now than retaining the fact that science is science and factual rather than this perception that it's an opinion Mm -hmm. which is, is our own doing because we're not out in the community and Absolutely. we're seen as being the elite doing these things that we don't care about them, them being the community. So I, I think that it is incredibly important. And so in Baltimore, I spent five years developing programs to really invest in a conversation with different uh, community members, different community organizations, schools. And it's, it's amazing how how programs just grow. And so we did school-based programs of, of using science to talk about stress and trauma, to use reading as a positive way to deal with stress and trauma. And from that, um, doing art, we have a whole art program that we also did around the science that then brought in the mayor's office and the mayor's office invited me to work with city council and then city council invited me. And then from that, which was incredibly rewarding, Emeryn, began a conversation of uh, city council members working on trauma-informed care for policy that affect the laws and governance of a city and a state to then say, hey, you know what, there's, there's some biology here. Let, let's talk about the biology of trauma, which then became instituted into the laws and the policies in a way that gave perspective to how you might think about developing laws and then fed into not just governance, but fed into policing, mm. which in, in many communities is, is a huge issue right now of how policing happens. And so it was incredibly rewarding. I learned a lot. I was It, it was rewarding working with those community organizations, people so passionate and work so hard to ensure equity and within a community and access to resources, right? You can have things available, but if you didn't build your city in a way that the communities that need those resources can access them, then it's useless. And so it was, um, well, we had city council come to campus and they did research in the lab. And we, it was really rewarding. Um, and in the end, we built this huge trauma summit where I've invited scientists to study trauma to educate city leadership and community member leaders, and then vice versa. Here's what we're seeing in the community. Here's the power of what's happening amongst 
the different community members and the, and the policies and um, equity that's happening to inform the scientists. So it was, it was, uh, it was a huge thing to organize, I will just say, but it was very rewarding, very rewarding. We got the mayor's office and the chief of police to come together in one forum, which if anybody out there knows, Baltimore knows that that's, that's difficult. That's really difficult. So it was, it was great. Well, that's a, that's a wonderful way of uh, ending this conversation. Um, I don't want to end it. Hopefully we'll have many more opportunities in the future to follow up on this. Always, always happy to talk with you, Emeryn. And thank you for all of the incredible work that you do, you know, putting science into books that the community can digest, I think is also an incredible value. So thank you. Yeah, th thanks again, Tracy. Thanks. Sure.